0: So, way to go ladies, you made it to the end. It's gone by fairly quickly, hasn't it? I would like to encourage you, since we're wrapping up our study today, you've got quite a few weeks, right? We'll meet next week for our workshop, then you're gonna have a week off over Thanksgiving, and then we'll meet three weeks from now for our brunch. So over the next three weeks, you can take time to go back and review. And if you really want some extra credit, Go back and read the letter of 1 Corinthians, and once again, see how it all fits together. And then you'll be ready to, to share something that God has taught you from our study together. So, um, that's your homework assignment. Don't, don't um, leave your Bibles aside now that we're done with the study. So, we are once again today in this last section of 2 Corinthians... We find in chapters 10 to 13 that Paul issues his final challenge to this minority in the church that are continuing to reject his apostleship. And throughout these chapters, he is trying to transform their thinking, to flip it upside down, especially regarding this concept of weakness and strength. They live in a city where athletes are prized, right? They have the games that come every few years. And there are statues of strong men everywhere. It's highly valued in their society. And he's saying, you've got to flip everything upside down in your thinking. He wants them to learn to live in weakness so that Christ's power can have its way in their their lives. And... As we know, in this final section, the last half of chapter 12 and then into chapter 13, it's his final plea to them. And he's talking all about his upcoming visit. It will be his third visit. We know that when he first came to Corinth, he established the church. And then he came for a second visit, which, we, which has been called the painful visit. It did not go well. He was coming to check up on them, and, and he was not well received. And so now he's trying to prepare them for his third upcoming visit, and he's making it very clear that this time he will come bringing judgment to those that are continuing to reject his apostleship and he's going to deal with these super apostles. So, as we look at the last half of chapter 12, we're seeing this theme that has been woven throughout the entire letter, that Paul is modeling love. He's displaying this enduring love for the Corinthians. A while back in a previous study, I learned a definition of love that goes something like this. I might be paraphrasing it a bit. Love is giving of yourself to meet another's deepest needs, whether they deserve it or not, without expecting anything in return. This is the kind of love that Paul is modeling. And I pulled out the cross here this morning because I don't need a PowerPoint. That's all I need. When we think of love, this, we look at the cross, we look at what Jesus did for us through his death on our behalf. This is love. It's pouring out your life for another. So we're seeing in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 12 that love means giving love, even when it is not understood or returned. So if you'll open with me, I'm going to read those verses. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 14 and 15. Here for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? The Corinthians have gotten their gander up over this idea that Paul has refused their financial support. And it's this old way of thinking that their culture has ingrained them with, this concept of patronage, that they would give him money and then he would be obligated to them. And what's most troublesome about that is that the idea of patronage is all about exalting yourself trying to move up in the social world and Paul is trying to get them to understand that just because he's rejected their offer of money, they're not to take it personally and it doesn't mean that he doesn't care for them I love this phrase where it says he's saying, I don't seek what you have I don't care about money I seek you. I care about you. And it's as if Paul is saying, I'm going to keep loving you more, even if you're going to be loving me less. You can't get me to stop loving you. He's giving of himself for their highest good. It's kind of this play on words here. They're talking all about money, and he's saying, I'm not going to spend money. I'm spending my life for you. And we also can see throughout the book earlier in chapter 6, verse 11 and 13, and chapter 7, verse 2, where Paul asked them to open their hearts to him. And he says, my heart remains open to you. And then in verse 12 of chapter 6, he says, I'm not withholding affection from you. And then chapter 11, verse 11. He once again affirms his strong love for them. So Paul is modeling this enduring love, this love that gives and gives and is completely spent. And I think about this and I think, only God can help us to love like that. So love is spending yourself completely for others. Paul is exhausting himself, spending himself wholly on their behalf. He's willing to be completely used up. He's pouring out his life for love of Christ and love for his church. In verses 16 to 18, we find that Paul is continuing, as as he has been, to assert the integrity of his ministry And he says that he and his counterparts are above reproach. And he says, Paul, that he's not receiving any money through them. Titus is not receiving money for this Jerusalem collection and then siphoning it along to Paul. He's saying that the way their walk, their way of life, their character should reveal that they are trustworthy. And then we look at verse verse nineteen. Have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. Love is building others up. He says in chapters 10, verses 8, and in 1310 later on that the authority that the Lord has given to him, he knows it's not ever to be used to tear them down, but it's always to build them up. Paul is not defending himself. He's not concerned about his reputation. Even though they have been tearing him down, he continues to seek to build them up. He selflessly gives himself for their strengthening. He's concerned ultimately about their spiritual growth. This word here, building up, literally means a building serving as a home. And so figuratively, it means instructions that builds a person up to be the suitable dwelling place of God. To have a heart where the Lord is at home there. And this is Paul's desire them I don't know about you but I'm challenged by this kind of enduring love that gives and gives and gives and I think do we love others with that kind of love with a love that Jesus has extended to us and I wonder this morning maybe there's someone in particular In our lives, maybe in your family, maybe in our church, maybe in your neighborhood, somewhere in your life, at work, where the Lord is saying, you need to keep on keeping on, endure and loving that person. Keep giving, even though they don't even receive it as love or they misunderstand it or they're not returning it. By the Spirit, we can be empowered to do so. And then as we move further along, we see Paul's final warnings and greetings. He knows that the tearful letter brought many of the Corinthians to repentance. So this letter, especially as he's wrapping it up, we're seeing that this letter has been designed to bring the rest of the church to repentance and restoration. I think... Oh my, Paul's a lot more patient than me. Because my tendency would be to not wait and send letters, but it would be to just go there <laughs> and immediately want to address the situation and try to make things right. And so we're seeing that Paul's willing to wait and he's trusting the Spirit to work in these people's hearts. And he has been offering lots and lots of grace, but here he's going to give a clear call to repentance. In, if we move on, verse 20 and 21. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sexuality that they have practiced. So, loving someone doesn't mean that you extend grace perpetually. There may be times where it's best to confront, to address the situation, to speak the truth. And we're seeing this beautiful example of Paul holding them accountable while at the same time still seeking to build them up. He's modeling just what Christ was full of, right? Truth and grace. You have to have both. You can't go in to try to confront someone with all truth. You've got to have some grace and love, some encouragement to go along with it. Now Paul predicts the worst here, it seems, but you have to know that back in this time both the speakers of the day, the philosophers and in their literature and then we find it in other areas of the New Testament as well This is a literary device called a a vice catalog. Okay, so it may kind of seem a lot worse than it really is. Or maybe it seems that Paul just is like a spiritual father that knows exactly what his kids are up to. But what we're seeing here is this, all of these vices, old way of life that they're supposed to have left behind. So selfishness is reigning in their hearts and it's wreaking havoc in their community. They are living like Corinthians rather than Christians. And it seems as if some still have not left the sexual morality behind that he addressed to them in the first letter he sent to them. And also, in your own time, if you have time to go back, in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 6 to 10, he addressed the Corinthians and reminded them of the wilderness generation and how rebellious they were. And it seems that those sins that were rampant there are still continuing, even in the church in Corinth. I love this reminder, this call to repentance. Repent. To repent means a change of mind, to think differently afterwards, to become aware of sin, and then have sorrow and seek God's pardon. This is Paul's desire for those that are still living in these patterns of sin and the old way of life. And so he says he will not spare those that are still questioning his apostleship. Because if they reject Paul and his message, they are ultimately rejecting the gospel and their saving faith in Christ. So Paul announces that he will de- deal with those severely. With the false teachers and any that are following them. And we They've kind of been accusing Paul of being a wimp throughout this letter. But he's warning them that though he is weak, the power of God will be at work as he deals with them. Let's read in chapter 13, beginning with verse 2. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them, since you seek proof that christ is speaking in me he is not weak in dealing with you but is powerful among you for he was crucified in weakness but lives by the power of god for we also are weak in him but in dealing with you we will live with him by the power of god you see how paul is saying i know that the power of god is at work in your hearts by the spirit I know that he's already working, and you think that I'm weak, but when I come, the power of God is going to be at work in and through me as well. You see, Paul has given them a grace period, but it's coming to an end. But his warnings are given here in order to inspire them to change, to draw them to repentance. He longs for these words of judgment to bring about their restoration. And then Paul continues boldly in verses 5 to 10. Chapter 13, verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. This is the test of his apostleship that he's speaking of here. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong. In other words, don't continue to reject my leadership and the gospel. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak, and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I'm away from you. That when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not. This call for the Corinthians to examine themselves <coughs> was a popular phrase with the philosophers of the day. Maybe it's something that you've heard before. Socrates puts it this way, the unexamined life is not worth living. So Paul articulates his challenge in a way that would have been very, very clear to them. The Corinthians have put Paul to the test. Now they must be, Stop focusing on Him and turn and look at themselves. Examine yourselves, he says. Assess your own spiritual condition. I don't know about you, but I think it's a lot easier to just focus on everybody else rather than to turn and take time and reflect and ask the Spirit, would you examine my heart and my life? Show me these old ways that I need to have just left behind they're having their way in my life Mm -hmm. may we be ever so sensitive to the conviction of the spirit and we're seeing his love here once again where he says you may think that I failed the test but what I long for most is I just want you to do what's right I have to uphold the truth to you. And I'm willing to be seen as weak. I just want you to be strong. And this is the phrase that I can't get out of my mind. Your restoration is what we pray for. Because everybody, every single person in this room has someone in their lives that that's their prayer. We long for their restoration. So Paul... Wants so badly for them to heed his warnings and correct their ways before he arrives for the third visit. He wants them to separate themselves from the false teachers and walk in the newness of life that Christ brings. He wants their relationship with him, every single one of them, to be reconciled to him. Throughout chapters 10 to 13, we've seen this contrast work. Paul talks about his absence and his presence. And we see this contrast once again. They've accused Paul of being bold in his letters and weak in their presence. But he is saying that he will not be seen as weak when he comes for this third time. He may be compelled to deal harshly with those that still remain unrepentant. Connie passed along in an email this fabulous quote from Mark Buchanan. He says, Repentance is the ruthless dismantling of old ways of seeing and thinking, and then a diligent and vigilant building of new ones. It is about saying no to ourselves, our impulses and cravings, our acts of self-promotion and vindication, our use of power for its own sake, it's growing day by day into the same attitude that Christ had. And by exactly the same means, emptying of ourselves, giving ourselves, it's refusing to grasp what we think is owed us, and instead embracing what we think is beneath us. Now, I think I've often thought of repentance as kind of a one-time thing, right? When we first come to the Lord in in saving faith. But this description here, I would almost say that it's it's a description of the Spirit's work in a believer's life. Doing that renewing, that transforming work, making them new creations. It's no longer living for yourself, but living for Christ and others. And I love this call to think of repentance as something that can be ongoing. This challenge to examine our lives it shouldn't just be done periodically, but I think consistently. We do believe the truth, right? That Christ has made all things new. And he's doing this work of bringing about new creation. It's happening. It's being ushered in. And it's happening in our hearts. We trust the Spirit to continue (coughs) to do this transforming work. This is not work that we can do on our own. We believe that, that the Spirit... It's within us, renewing us day by day, making our lives cross-shaped so that we would pour out our lives for Christ and for others. I think of the book that's called Love Does by Bob Goff. I highly recommend it. And what brings it to mind is that he uses, for the titles of each of the chapters, he says this, I used to think this, but now I know. And that's that's the beginning of the process, right? For the Spirit to work is changing our minds. I love the song that we sang this morning. Changes how we see things. Changes how we think. This is the Spirit's work being done in our lives and we've seen the evidence this is what the Lord has done in Paul's life and this is what he longs for in the lives of the Corinthians and so the question's here how will you make it a practice to examine yourself, to examine your life And would you be bold enough to ask the Spirit, is there an old pattern, an old way of life that you want me to leave behind, that you can help me to walk away from and help me to establish a new pattern? And then we find Paul's closing in chapter 13, verse 11. It's an appeal for peace. He begins by saying, rejoice. And his hope is that all will repent so they can all rejoice together. He says, aim for restoration. He's longing for harmony to be restored in this community. And I think of those people, maybe that that were restored to Paul earlier, and how they're going to need to be restored and encourage and support those ones that will come to repentance then, right before his third visit. And then comfort one another, encourage and strengthen one another, agree with one another. Ultimately, they need to be agreeing about who Christ is and his gospel. And live in peace. They have been greatly divided, living at odds with one another and with Paul. It's the call to live in peace. And then he concludes this verse by saying that God is the source of love and peace. Out of love. God has provided reconciliation to those that trust in Christ. Believers are loved deeply and they're to live in unity and love one another well. And I can't help but think of our society today where quarreling and divisiveness are just rampant, they're commonplace. And just think. If the church, the community of the church, can live in peace like this, how others will be drawn to Jesus Christ? This last section here, I'm giving for you a review to take home. These are some of the things that I have really learned. Through our study of 2 Corinthians, has been revealed to us and then the call that we've been given is how we can reflect him so I'll leave you with those you can use those in your review in the upcoming weeks but I want to conclude with this thought the Corinthians seemed many of them seemed to have lost sight of Christ and the gospel And so their community was in tumult. They were focused so much on the problems within their community, let's say within their four walls, that they didn't seem to be having any influence in the city of Corinth. They were failing in this call to be ambassadors of reconciliation, to be bringing the good news. Jesus Christ to a city that was full of people that needed to hear it. People that needed to know that God is still the creator of all who is able to recreate anyone who trusts in Christ. That Jesus has ushered in a new creation. That he is making all things new. May we be a community of love and peace that fulfills this calling to bring the good news to our community and the people around us. Because there are many that you are in contact with day by day who desperately need to know this true gospel, the new life that Jesus brings. And so I'll conclude with this story. This is someone who desperately needed to know the goodness of Jesus. His name was Nicky Cruz. He was the leader of the toughest gang in New York City. His Satanist parents abused him brutally. So he grew up a hardened man, void of love and full of hate. I wanted to do to others what my mother did to me, Nicky says. I used to feel good when I hurt other people, but privately, he didn't feel good at all. He was wracked with loneliness. Only two people saw the desperate condition of Mickey's heart. One was a psychologist who told him repeatedly, there's a dark side in your life, Nikki, that nobody can penetrate. You are walking straight to jail, the electric chair, and..." And hell, there's no hope for you. But the other was a pastor named David Wilkerson. He (coughs) risked his life to tell Nikki that there was hope. (coughs) Nikki said, I heard his voice. He told me, God has the power to change your life. I cursed him. I spit in his face. I hit him. I told him, I don't believe in what you say. Get away from me. Nikki never expected what he heard Wilkerson say next. He said, you could cut me up into a thousand pieces and lay them all in the street, and every piece would still love you. Nikki said, that did damage to me good damage in my brain and in my heart. I began to question, and for two weeks, I could not sleep, because all I could think about was this love. Nikki and his gang showed up at one of Wilkerson's rallies. One by one, they each gave their lives to Christ. It was the crucifixion, Jesus' death on the cross, that grabbed Nikki. He said, I was choked up with pain and fighting back the tears. I was fighting, and then I surrendered. I let Jesus hug me, and I let my head rest on his chest. I said, I'm sorry. Forgive me. And for the first time, I told somebody, I love you. The love Nicky got in return radically changed his life. He said, when I had opened my eyes, I got a new heart. I've been born again. I'm a child of the Lord. This is the work of our God. He's in the business of offering hope to the hopeless, bringing light to their dark hearts, and making all things new. Have a great day, ladies.